Welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast brought to you by The Score. I'm one of your two hosts, Joseph Cacharo, joined in studio by Joe Wolfond. What up? What up is, uh, what did Kevin Harlan say? Game! Series! Toronto has won! Yeah, that's what's up. Um, what a second round. My wow. God. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the end of the second round today. Um, briefly touch on it and then get into a conference final preview. My voice is a little shot from a just a scintillating weekend of NBA playoff action. Not a lot of sleep these days, but I don't think we'd have it any other way based on how great these playoffs have been and how great this job has been for us. So let's get right into it with the obvious starting point, Kawhi Leonard with the first ever Game 7 buzzer beater in NBA history, the first winner-take-all game buzzer beater since Michael Jordan famously hit the shot against Cleveland 30 years ago in 1989. Joe Wolfond, where were you, and how did you react? Um, So I was at a Mother's Day dinner with my in-laws, and some of the attendees watched basketball, some of them didn't, but... By the end of the game, everybody was totally glued to the television and totally invested in everything that was going on. And it was just pure agony for 47 minutes and 59 seconds. I mean, really, the, the full 48 minutes because the ball didn't go in until a couple seconds after the buzzer had sounded. Um, this game was insanely tight. No team led by more than nine points at any point in time. Really physical, incredible defensive battle back and forth and I mean it just came down to one of the most flatly incredible shots that I've ever seen given the moment the stakes the degree of difficulty fading out of bounds putting it over top of a seven foot two behemoth who's closing out on you the arc on that shot and I mean seen Kawhi Leonard shoot a lot of jump shots He, he is a flat shooter he does not put a lot of loft under the ball so for him to to get it up as high as he did, uh, to to both get it over top of Embiid's outstretched arm and then produce the soft landing that it had, where it was able to bounce off of the rim four times and drop through, I just I couldn't put it into words. It was an unbelievable moment, and you know for the Toronto Raptors and their fan base who have experienced so much playoff heartache, trauma, disappointment, whatever you want to call it, uh, over the past. I mean, really over their entire history. And obviously a lot of people have pointed out the symmetry between that shot and the shot that Vince Carter missed 18 years ago. An extremely similar situation at the exact same stage of the playoffs, a game seven in the second round against Philadelphia with a chance to go to the conference finals and play the Bucks. And Vince's shot rimmed out and Kawhi's dropped in. It was just just an incredible sports moment, an all-timer. Yeah, it really was. And I wrote about this yesterday, but what... What Kawhi's given the Raptors, um, and, and I think in this past series in particular more than any other point, is a type of, I don't know if relevancy is the right word, but like a certain type of cachet that comes with having like a true star among stars. And when I say that, I mean like, you know, the Raptors, look, they've had a good run the last half decade, even coming into this year before they got Kawhi Leonard. They had made the playoffs five years in a row. They had won 50 games three years in a row they advanced past the first round three years in a row only the Warriors and the Cavs had one more playoff series in the last three years so like obviously the Raptors were already relevant but to me 
that team, the like DeRozan, Lowry, Dwayne Casey Raptors, they were just kind of like uh, a really good team that it's almost like they were only there to set the stage for the real stars, you know? They were only there to set the stage for LeBron James to shine on and to demoralize them on. Go back to when Chris Bosh's peak with the Raptors was just first round playoff exits and you know in 2007 Jason Kidd was like the very clearly the best player in that series in 2008 Dwight Howard kind of was the bane of the Raptors existence this series against Philly was a star-filled series a marquee series that everyone's eyes were on with Jimmy Butler on the other side Joel Embiid on the other side Ben Simmons on the other side and at the end of the day four or five out of the seven games if not all seven of them Kawhi Leonard just stood head and shoulders above the rest. And that, it's just a feeling the Raptors, their fan base, they've never had before. And then to end it like that, to to give, you know, not only for his own career, but to give the Raptors and these, you know, long-tortured fans that you were mentioning a moment that's going to live on in NBA history as a -a one-of-a-kind moment, I'm not saying... You know, nothing matters after this because obviously the Raptors are a veteran team that wants to get to the finals and compete for a championship. But I think you can make the argument that this attachment to history that the Raptors now have has already made any kind of gamble on Kawhi Leonard worth it. I, yeah, and I, I've said this many times before, but they didn't need a moment like this in order to justify the trade that they made. I mean, that trade was its own justification. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to have a moment like this and for, for it to come as the capper of one of the greatest postseason series performances of all time is, I mean, it's just gravy, really. Uh, it's a whole lot of gravy, but like the Raptors made a trade that made perfect sense when they made it. As difficult as it was to swallow for the fan base and for a lot of DeMar DeRozan's teammates, he was beloved in the city. I mean, still is, obviously. And it was tough in a lot of ways. There was an emotional cost to that. But the the trade always, I think, was a no-brainer. And whatever happened, you know, whether Kawhi was physically compromised, whether the Raptors actually got the intended result and made it past the second round, which is where they flamed out in the last couple of years... They, they had to take that risk. So I don't think that they needed this kind of vindication. But, of course, I mean, you know, you, you just saw, like you said, a, a, a star-studded series where Kawhi was easily the best player, averages nearly 35 points a game on 63% true shooting, and finishes it with, with a shot that just took an outrageous amount of strength and skill to even get off in the first place. So... Regardless of what happens from here on out, whether they go and get rinsed by the Bucks, whether they go on to, to the finals, whether they go on to win a championship, I mean, whatever happens, I just think uh, this season has been a success for them now. And, and to have this moment that, like you said, is going to live on forever and all time. And, you know, Kawhi Leonard might be wearing a Clippers uniform next season and for the rest of his career. But... The video replays in the years to come are going to show him wearing a Raptors uniform when he made that shot. Yeah. Another thing I want to say is, like, I I think that Kyle Lowry is, is playing the role right now that he was always meant to play. And he had a couple of years there, 2015, 16, 2016, 17, when he was a legitimate superstar. 
offensively just absolutely dynamite with the way that he was hitting pull-up bombs and and had really like molded himself into one of the greatest three-point shooters in the league but he's never really been able to create a lot of separation it's always been a bit of a struggle for him to finish at the rim uh you know his size makes him a little bit vulnerable in the playoffs and and to defenses that want to trap him and when he was kind of forced to be a number one option or when he was forced to pick up the slack for DeMar DeRozan, who had his own playoff struggles, that's when you sort of saw the cracks in the foundation. And, and that's where he, I think, developed this really unearned reputation as a guy who didn't show up when it mattered the most. And if you watch that game seven, the Raptors got to where they were, to that moment in the game where they had a chance to win it at the buzzer because... They did all the little things because their defense was unbelievable. And yes, Lowry shot 4 of 13 in that game and couldn't get his threes to fall. He made so many unbelievable plays in the margins of that game. Grabbing offensive rebounds, grabbing loose balls, defending bigger guys in the post. I mean, anything that you could have conceivably asked him to do, he did. And I think he's just in a perfect spot right now. And and this is the guy he has been and should have been all along yeah I, I mean I've got no arguments there I've been saying you know I especially after his his contributions to game seven like I don't ever want to hear about Kyle Lowry's shooting struggles in the playoffs again like he's not the number one option on this team he's no longer the number two option on this team yet will he need to shoot better and be a more willing shooter for this team to win the championship absolutely no doubt about it but if you, regardless of whether you're a Raptors fan or not, if you cannot watch the Toronto Raptors, this current iteration of the Toronto Raptors, and not see and understand Kyle Lowry's value to winning, I I just don't think you'll ever get it. Like full stop. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. If you if you haven't come to that conclusion by now, then I mean, you formed your opinion yeah. and and it's you're the entitled wrong, to it. But, but it's it, the wrong. One. It's the wrong one. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I mean that. That closing lineup for the Raptors, they they started turning to it in that game four, basically out of desperation when they go to that jumbo front court. Kawhi Leonard's playing the two, and they've got Gasol at the five, Ibaka at the four, Siakam at the three, to try and counter the size that Philly was hitting them with. And that lineup was just monstrous defensively. I mean, flying around, rotating taking away those J.J. Redick dribble handoffs, denying the ball. That, I mean, that's how they won the game. And I just, Ibaka, who had a miserable series and has had a pretty tough postseason on the whole so far, had what I thought was, you know, maybe his most important game as a Raptor, was one of the only guys who could hit threes for this team in this game. Um, like you said, I mean, they're, they're going to need all of that uh, in the next round against Milwaukee because uh, the Bucks don't mess around. And they legitimately run nine or ten deep, where the Raptors, I think we saw, they paired their rotation down to seven guys in that game seven. I think they're probably going to have to expand that again. I don't think they can go just seven guys for an entire series. So they're going to need to get something from Norman Powell. They're going to need to get more from Fred Van Vliet, who, again, he was great defensively in that game seven also, but he needs to hit a shot at some point. I don't know what his percentage was from the field in that series against Philly, but I... I think it was less than 20%. So a lot of question marks still for this team. But uh, what I kind of keep coming back to is as much as that series was insanely close, I mean, it couldn't have been closer. It came down to a buzzer beater in game seven. The Raptors 
were getting better shots throughout the series. And I think their defense did exactly what I expected it to do against Philly. And their offense didn't. Uh, and the reason for that was they just weren't knocking down open shots. So on the one hand, you could look at that and say that's cause for encouragement because something like that just tends to naturally regress to the mean for a team that has shown it's capable of making threes at a high rate the way the Raptors have. But at the same time, they actually have to do it. It's, it's a seven-game series. So, you know, you say process over results when it's over the course of a long regular season, but in a short series, the results are really what matters. Yeah, and <clears throat> mentioning those results, so the Raptors, who again, after the deadline, they were the number one three-point shooting team in the league, they generated 27 more uh, open or wide open three-pointers so far in the playoffs than any other team. They converted those types of looks at an over 38% clip during the regular season. During the playoffs, they're at 32.6% on those looks. Like, I agree there's no guarantee that that's going to regress to the mean because it's not a large enough sample size, but I would still bet on it, you know, getting closer to their normal numbers and their normal averages from there. And I still think that alone is is cause for encouragement because, you know, the Bucks are going to concede a lot of open looks and you know the Raptors a have to be willing to take them because that's been a yeah. big issue for guys like Kyle Lowry, Mark Gasol, even Danny Green in, in the last couple games of yeah. the Phillies. I mean, series. G- Gasol in particular, I think, is going to be the guy right. where like the Bucks are going to give him all yeah, Brooke, day. They do shoot. not want Brook Lopez defending. And, on the and if he's pump faking or catching the ball and not even looking to the rim, but just looking to make that next swing pass, that's a win for Milwaukee. Like he has got to come up ready to fire. Because that's what the Bucks do. That's what they're going to concede. They're going to give up those pick-and-pop jumpers, whether it's in the mid-range, whether it's above the break threes. And obviously the Raptors have to make them, but that starts with them taking those shots. Right. And, and, and a lot of the time, you know, throughout the course of this series, whether it was Gasol, whether it was Lowry, their unwillingness to let it fly a lot of times just crippled the Raptors' offense because they would end up passing up those looks in favor of worse shots, frankly, I mean, sometimes the first available shot is the best available shot, and especially against a team like Milwaukee that can really swarm and recover extremely quickly. If you get a look from three, you got to take it. We're already starting to dig into Raps Bucks, so honestly, let's just keep that conversation okay. <laughs> going, and we can move to the West. Well, I do want to. Uh, I, I think we should like maybe talk about the Sixers too, just briefly. Because For sure, they got they have a fascinating offseason yeah. upcoming, and. I think you know one of the one of the big pieces of news coming out of this was that Brett Brown will be returning for next season, which obviously I think that makes way more sense than than the sort of misguided reporting that he was going to be gone unless they made it to the finals. That never made any sense because look, they, they lost this series by centimeters. Uh, you know, I think actually they played better in this series than I expected them to. I said before the playoffs started, you know, we were talking about which coaches might be on the hot seat, that if they flamed out in the second round the way they did last year, when they just weren't particularly competitive, got washed in five games, got exposed on both sides of the ball, that that would have been cause for some evaluation of Brett Brown's coaching performance. That's not what happened here, right? Like, they had the Raptors on the ropes a bunch of different times in this series. I think they... I mean, Brett Brown in particular made some really important adjustments. And I think he coached a really good series. And I think he deserves to be back. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, For me, the more fascinating questions, obviously, are about their roster construction. And, 
Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, and J.J. Redick, who yeah. I don't know why people keep leaving him out when they talk about their big free agents. Like, J.J. Redick's... They're been, insanely reliant on him exactly. Um And especially if you're going to keep, say, Jimmy Butler around and you're going to have, like, a big three of Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler, and Ben Simmons, you need a cacophony of shooting around those guys. And J.J. Redick's as good as it gets. Like, you cannot lose J.J. Redick with the limited amount of spacing already on the floor for this... Uh, kind of star trio. So coming into the playoffs, I was of the mindset that because of their lack of shooting, because Ben Simmons needs the ball in his hands because he can't play off the ball, that it made more sense to me for them to let Jimmy Butler walk and bite that bullet and keep Tobias Harris because of the kind of spot-up shooting he provides and the spacing he provides for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And then the playoffs came. And especially this series against Toronto, where you're kind of reminded that when you put all the stuff aside of what you know, how he bullied Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns and how uh, his exit happened in Chicago and Minnesota. Jimmy Butler is an absolute gamer that you can count on in the biggest moments. He is a professional bucket getter who will take on the challenge of guarding oftentimes the other team's best player. There will be spacing issues to figure out, but what I came away from the playoffs remembering is like, oh yeah, Jimmy Butler's a lot better than Tobias Harris, even though I like Tobias Harris you got to keep that guy around and just figure it out from there with shooting around them. I mean, they have a lot sort of invested in Harris, right? Because they gave up so much to get him. And I do think he's a pretty good fit and that they would love to have him back. It's just a question of, is it going to justify what it's going to cost to keep him? And I, I don't think, especially after the, the playoffs that he had, which was pretty underwhelming, I don't know that he's going to command a max contract or necessarily anything even close to that. But I think you're probably looking at something in the vicinity of 25 million a year. And I think he might be worth that to some team, say like the Utah jazz, right. Who are going to have about that amount of cap space this summer really need that sort of secondary scoring punch and a little bit more creation from the wing he would be worth $25 million a year to the Jazz. But to the Sixers, I don't think that he is. So, I mean, what do you do with that? You know, Do you decide that you're just too invested, you're too pot committed because you gave up that incredibly valuable Miami draft pick to get him and you know, Landry Shamit and your own draft pick? Like, it, was, it was a steep price to pay if, if it's just going to wind up being a half a season. But at the same time, you don't want to throw good money after bad and you don't want to saddle yourself with you know a, a roster that is basically not getting equivalent production out of the, out of the money that you're giving out yeah no i completely agree with that um you have any other sixers thoughts they they need to get a competent backup big man yeah. i mean it, it is insane like they would have won this series if they had had anybody who was capable of playing like 12 decent minutes behind them beat off of the bench they got one good game out of greg monroe uh boban was pretty effective in the series against the nets but you saw you know, against quality competition, those guys just couldn't hang. And the stat that is just always going to blow my mind when I look back at this series is Joel Embiid plus 90 in a seven-game series that they lost. And in game seven, he played 45 minutes and was a plus 10. They were minus 12 in three minutes without him on the floor. Like... How is that even possible? Do you know how much they were outscored by with him on the bench throughout the whole series? I think 110. 109 points. There you go. 109 points. For me, 
I don't want to say the series came down to this because obviously Kawhi decided the series, but one thing I'll remember from this series is that, yeah, exactly what you were just saying. A guy in Greg Monroe that the victorious team in this series literally had no use for, okay, by the trade deadline. They let him walk away for free. Yeah. Played meaningful minutes on the other team in this year. You know what I mean? Like Philadelphia was, and they weren't relying on Greg Monroe, but they needed something out of him, which he didn't give them except for one game. They were somewhat relying on a guy in the second round that the team they were playing had no use for. Yeah. I, that, that, that's the story that kind of, right? And um, um, I mean, just one last thing on Embiid. I know, I don't want to turn this into a straw man because I, I think, you know, the, the people who are, chiding him for showing all that emotion after the game or a, a very, very small minority. But just in the event that any of those people happen to be Pound the Rock listeners, I just want to say he earned every single bit of the emotion that he showed at the end of that game seven. I mean, th- this was a guy, you look at the way that his career started, multiple foot surgeries, you know, questions about his work ethic and his weight, doubts about whether he would ever even be able to play and have an NBA career. He's, you know, working out in Qatar mysteriously to try and get his body right. He ends up only playing 35 games in his rookie season because of a knee injury. Finally, he blossoms into a defensive player of the year candidate, a borderline MVP candidate. He comes into the series and he's playing through knee soreness and the runs and an upper respiratory infection and just leaving it all out there on the floor. And I know he struggled offensively and Every game of the series, basically, except for game three. I thought defensively he was unbelievable. And obviously, all season long, you've seen the impact that he has. And like, anytime he's not been on the floor, the Sixers have been a disaster. And that's while having, you know, four other stars on their team. They just haven't been able to hang when he hasn't been out there. He's been so important to them. And even in a series where he couldn't get anything going offensively, he was their best and most important player. And, uh, for him to have played as hard as he did through everything that he did uh, after coming as far as he's come in the last couple of years, to watch his season end on a shot like that, I mean, I think I would have reacted exactly the same way. Yeah, and my last note on Embiid, you know, a lot of people hate on him for the way he, I guess, over-celebrates maybe in the moment. You know, he's doing running down the court, doing the airplane when all the Sixers have done has built a 2-1 lead. I get it, I do. I'll say this, and I go back to, I actually had um, a pretty rare opportunity, wasn't like pre-planned or anything, to have like a two-minute chat with Joel B, just him and I, at the 2018 All-Star Game in LA, the Saturday of that weekend, and it was just after his scrum, and I was asking him about this very thing, about um, the way he seems to ruffle some veterans' feathers because of the way he conducts himself on the court, and I'll never forget that conversation because what he essentially said was, Everything that he went through from an injury perspective, just to play in the NBA and losing his brother, which a lot of people forget about his brother. I think he was 13 or 14 years old, died in a car crash back home uh, in 2014. Joel Embiid straight up said to me, like going through all that before he even played a minute in the NBA gave him a perspective where once he got to the league and started playing meaningful minutes, he was going to enjoy and celebrate every positive moment on an NBA court and he didn't care if it offended anyone he didn't care what anyone thought about it that's what he was going to do and to his credit that's what he's doing and I can't fault the guy because he's doing that like 
He's that's not, what's good for the game. Exactly. He's not going into the crowd and flipping off fans. He's not like saying crazy offensive things about his opponents. He's celebrating when it's reason to celebrate. Okay, maybe celebrating more than the average player would in those moments, but still he's celebrating in moments of positivity. And A, he can also take criticism. He's as critical as himself as anyone else. He'll be the first to say he was trash after a bad game. And then you see the emotion he has after a loss like that. Like, you know the guy cares. So I just have no problem with the way he conducts himself on the court. Agreed. All right, let's uh, let's shift quickly back into that Raptors-Bucks matchup we want to talk about. Um, I guess right off the bat, I'll just ask you, who's winning this series? Uh, we both games. made our predictions. I, I said Bucks in six, and... To be perfectly honest, I was leaning closer to Bucks and five than I was to Bucks and seven. I, I worry about the Raptors transitional lineups and what they're going to be able to do against the Bucks transitional lineups because Milwaukee's bench has been unbelievable. I mean, George Hill in that Celtics series was like, I, I don't know where that came from, but he was basically back to being like Utah George Hill. Swarming on defense, applying ball pressure, creating turnovers, driving to the basket, hitting threes off the dribble. Then you've got Brogdon coming back. And I think it sounds like he's going to start the series coming off of the bench. So they're going to keep going to that jumbo starting front court with Giannis, Miritich, and Brooke Lopez. And I wonder if the Raptors try and counter that with, with their own jumbo front court with Siakam, Ibaka, and Gasol. I mean, that would require them to take Danny Green out of the starting lineup, which he, he also had a really rough series against Philadelphia, but they desperately need his shooting. So I don't know what happens there, but like the Bucks, I, th- I just think are going to be coming in a lot fresher, not only because of, of the time that they've had off in between series, but, but because their bench has managed to give their starters a lot of rest. And they've all just managed to give themselves a lot more rest because they've blown teams out of the water. So... I would worry about that for Toronto. Um, I, you know, as I would worry about it against any team, I, I worry about, um, you know, how they're going to be able to deal with Giannis and whether Kawhi is ultimately going to take on the bulk of that assignment, whether they want that given how much of an offensive load they need him to carry. Uh, they, they didn't put Kawhi on Giannis really at all throughout the regular season. I'm sure like late in games, they're going to go to that look, but they'll probably try and avoid it as much as they can. Milwaukee pretty decisively won that season series, and I know that was before Gasol came aboard, but after seeing how hesitant Gasol was to shoot in that Philly series, I I don't know how much he's going to tilt the balance of this matchup. Now, his rim protection, his interior defense, is definitely going to be really important. And as I mentioned in our preview, I think the Raptors might throw some zone looks at the Bucks at some point in the series. I think that's a, probably a good idea for them. They have Siakam operating up top, and he can make things a little bit difficult for Giannis and try and prevent him from getting inside. But then you also have the guys ready to basically pinch in from the wing and dig down, and you're able to park Gasol back near the rim rather than having to bring him out to guard Brooke Lopez on the perimeter. So I think as a sort of change-up the Raptors can throw, that's a, a good one to have up their sleeve. I just think that the Bucks are a better team with greater margin for error. And while I can see the Raptors winning this series, I think there are a greater number of circumstances in which the Bucks win. 
Yeah, and, you know, this is a series, well, I said the same thing against Philly, but this is really a series the Raptors could use OG Ananobi in mm-hmm. because his length, his size, just another body to throw at Giannis, even if it's for, if it's for a few minutes um, defensively, could have been huge. So I went with Bucks and seven uh, in my prediction. I think, you know, and I've been saying all year, like the Bucks are at, at every part championship juggernaut when you look at their numbers their win profile their statistical profile all that they've proven to be the better team over the course of the year they're at home they have home court advantage I think they have the better team top to bottom so they should win I don't think the margin is as great as a lot of people are making it seem a again they they didn't play the post deadline Raptors that had Marcus all who other than in the playoffs actually really punished teams for allowing them to generate open looks I think Again, the law of averages is going to start to even out, and they will punish the Bucks somewhat with some of those open looks. I will say, too, Marcus Saul in Game 7, I actually didn't think his willingness to shoot was the issue. He just didn't make enough of them. But I thought he actually was a lot more willing in Game 7. So I did go Bucks in 7. Just with, I think the Bucks from the series, but with a smaller margin in my prediction. And that's like my head. But I will say, and this is like not a Homer thing because we're sitting here in Toronto. And I was saying this, I don't know if you remember this, I was saying this a couple weeks ago. Something about the Raptors and this collection of veterans, uh, like I compared it, not that they have a 2011 Dirk on this team that's like kind of at the end of his championship window, but like I think about that Mavericks team, if you know, if you're a hockey fan, I think about the 2018 last year's Washington Capitals. This team that had kind of like, failed in the playoffs over and over again and then I don't know it's like the bounces started going their way in the playoffs and there was a look you know I I even look at Kyle Lowry the way he ended that third quarter in game seven against Philly like I don't know how to explain it between Lowry and Marcus Saul and then like Kawhi Leonard having a statement to make of his own even though he's already won a title there just seems to be this like collective like this is our year man this might be our best chance to win it that as silly as it sounds, because the basketball reasons tell me Bucks in seven, I I see the Raptors finding a way to get through this. And so I, I kind of want to go Raptors in seven. Winning that game seven on the road. Yeah. Because okay. I don't know. There's something about this group that just keeps making me think, man, like I hate I usually hate that like this team just wants it more. I really do. But there was moments in that game seven against Philly. There was moments throughout the playoffs when I have you watched Milwaukee play lately? I mean, they are locked in, so focused, hungry. They got hit in the mouth in that game one against the Celtics. They come out in that game two, and things are looking pretty tense for them in the first half, too. I mean, they're down by like six points early on. There is tension in that building, and suddenly it seems like their season is on the line. And they just come roaring back, turn that game into a laugher in the third quarter, and then run roughshod over the Celtics for the rest of the series. That team has shown no fear. They know who they are. They have an incredibly strong identity with role players who have really taken specialization, I think, to a new level. And I think that is what's been driving their success almost all season long. It's like everybody just knows their role and plays it to a T. And I think that is really important in in a playoff setting like this is like you know who you can rely on and you know what you can rely on them to do the raptors have a similar sort of identity but their complementary players to me have not lived up to their billing in the same way that the bucks have so far 
No, I agree with that. And again, like I said, like the, the Bucks are the better team. They've proven that. There's nothing we can say. Yeah. They've been know. telling us all year who exactly. they are. Exactly. They're a juggernaut. Um, but I don't know. And you know me, man. Like I, I'm usually very much about just using what we know and what we've seen to make predictions. You know, it's why I didn't think the Celtics were going to do much this playoffs. Because mm-hmm. same thing. They just we knew who they were. They showed us all year. It's just I. I look at this Raptors team and I just think, A, don't underestimate the fact that I actually do think they have the best player in the series. I think playoff Kawhi is one of two or three guys on the planet that is actually better than Giannis Antetokounmpo because I think he can do a lot of what Giannis does, except he can also shoot reliably. Um, So I'd say don't underestimate the presence of having the best player in the series and don't underestimate maybe just a, a group of capable veterans that maybe sees a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such an oversimplification, but it's going to come down to whether they can make shots. Yes. The Bucks showed last series that they will make some adjustments to their, to their defensive scheme as needed. So if the Raptors are just raining fire from above the break, then you might see the Bucks, you know, start to switch a little bit more, maybe start to blitz a little bit more, uh, you know, rather than just playing this conservative drop back and protecting the paint at all costs. But, you know, the Raptors have to prove that they can actually make the Bucks pay for running that scheme and you know what i saw last round wouldn't give me a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to do that what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to pound the rock on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'd also encourage you to check out the scores other sports podcasts for major league baseball there's expand the zone for soccer we've got sweeper keeper Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. I think we've we've talked about the Eastern Conference as much as we can. Let's spend the last 20-25 minutes of this podcast going to the West. Before we get into Warriors Blazers... Quickly, thoughts on Blazers Nuggets Game Seven and the end of Warriors Rockets. Blazers Nuggets Game Seven was an incredible, you know, seesawing game that we would have been talking about off the jump if if it hadn't been overshadowed by an even more ridiculous Game Seven right afterwards. But you know, we talked before that Game Six back in Portland. We both said we thought Portland was going to pull out that Game Six. And then get run off the floor in Game 7. And it sure looked like that was about to happen. The Nuggets went up huge early on. I mean, they were up by, what, 17 points? 17, yeah. In the second quarter. Gary Harris was cooking. Jokic was cooking. Like, the Blazers were back on their heels. And it just looked like, okay, you've had a great run. You're running out of gas. You're going up against a better team that you just don't have enough answers for. And this is where it ends. And they didn't go away. They just kept chipping away, chipping away. And obviously, the story of the game was C.J. McCollum, who put in one of the greatest Game 7 performances that we've seen on, on a night when Damian Lillard just didn't have it. Uh, McCollum was able to carry them through, and it, it goes basically down to the wire. The Blazers erase that deficit. Evan Turner gives them massive minutes off the bench down the stretch. I mean, my God, and, and icing the game with those two free throws, too, with like eight seconds to go. He was incredible. You know, Ennis Cantor, as much as he just couldn't really hang defensively when he had to go up against Jokic, still gave them some positive contributions, serving as a re- release valve in the pick and roll, uh, hitting the offensive glass. I mean, 
I was shocked, honestly. I really thought that the Nuggets were going to win this game, especially after the way they started. And ultimately, I mean, this is the thing with the Nuggets, right? They were always going to be vulnerable if the shots weren't falling. And they shot two for 18 from three in this game. Jamal Murray couldn't hit anything. And as, as good as Jokic was in this game in this entire series, he, he is not going to be able to create the same kind of looks for himself that McCollum was able to create. And McCollum's ability to just get those pull-up mid-range jumpers basically every time down the floor proved to be the difference. Because Jokic, I mean, like the Nuggets could go to him in the post and use him to, to, to draw double teams and create open looks for others. At the end of the day, it was just, you know, one guy was basically able to take over by himself and the other guy wasn't. So my, the one, the only thing I want to talk about in terms of that game seven is CJ McCollum. Because CJ McCollum has been, you know, Dame has the Blazers moment of the postseason, obviously, with that step back three to eliminate the Thunder. CJ McCollum has been the best Blazer in what is now the best Blazers postseason run in almost two decades. Mm -hmm. He has been that good. I'd argue that besides Kawhi, out of the teams left standing, the players left standing, sorry, take away Kawhi, Kevin Durant, maybe Steph, CJ McCollum has been as good as anybody in these playoffs. Like He's been phenomenal. And, you know, you look at the playoffs as a whole, he's averaging 25.6 points, 5.8 rebounds, over three assists per game, and a true shooting percentage of almost like 55, which is for a guard is pretty good, but... You look at what he did with the Blazers facing elimination in the last two games of this series. Game six, facing elimination at home, 30 points, six rebounds on 50% shooting. Game seven, on the road in Denver, hostile environment, on a night when Dame Lillard was having a wretched shooting night. And CJ McCollum gives the Blazers 37 points on 17 of 29 shooting. It was a plus six. They were minus two in uh, three minutes without him. He, he's been the best Blazer in this play, and I just think it's awesome. The guy hasn't made an all-star game yet, and yet these playoffs are proving that he's a legit star and a big game star and a big moment star. Western Conference is brutal, man. It is. Um, you've, you gave a shout-out to McCollum. I just want to give an, another shout-out to Ennis Cantor, who every time I think he has outlived his utility in the postseason – and is going to get played off of the floor. He just finds a way to prove me wrong once again. And, and he played 40 minutes in that game seven. Uh, again, comes up with four huge offensive rebounds. Finishes with 12 and 12. It was a plus one in the game. So, you know, they were able to live with him staying on the floor. Obviously, the Nuggets missing a ton of shots had something to do with that. We can talk about this in a bit. But I do worry about what's going to happen to him against Golden State. But for now, I mean, this guy is playing through a separated shoulder. He is playing on an empty stomach because he's fasting for Ramadan. And he is dispelling so many narratives about who he is and what he was capable of. Every game that he plays, every performance that he submits where he manages to hang in there defensively and provide positive contributions at the offensive end. I mean, where would they be without him? Like when they, when they plucked him off of the buyout market late in the season... I didn't even really understand it. At that time, obviously, Nurkic was healthy. But it seems strange because they had Collins as their backup center. They had Myers Leonard as their third center. It didn't seem like they were going to have any use for him in the playoffs. So I, I really didn't think much of it at the time, except that it was a strange decision by him to go to a place where it didn't seem like there was going to be a role for him. 
and he has saved their season. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Like he has absolutely saved them time and again. As much as he struggled with Jokic in this series, as much as there were times when it seemed like he was being stretched past his breaking point, being put in those pick and rolls, if they didn't have him there to at least bang with Jokic, put him in foul trouble at the other end, make him work, I, you know, they lose this series 100%. So kudos to him. You know, hats off for an incredible postseason run. And he's going to be a free agent this offseason, and, and I think he earned himself a nice payday. Yeah, and Cantor's another one of those guys that we were talking about in beat earlier. People kind of hate on Cantor because, well, A, you know, he's obviously a very bad defender in space on the pick and roll, and teams attack that. And he does like to troll guys and have fun out there and whatever. But Enes Cantor's actually a pretty likable guy. He's kind of a game or two in terms of showing up in the big games and defense notwithstanding. Some guys just aren't good defenders. That's fine. He gives you other things. He's a good offensive player. He's a tremendous offensive rebounder and rebounder in general. And then also you just look at him like off the court. Like the guy's literally dealing with the political ramifications of speaking out against the evils of a like a wannabe dictator. The, there's just no reason to hate on this guy. You know, it's, it's another example of what because you don't like that. Maybe he enjoys his own success too much and trolls opponents. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just think regardless, you know, whether you like him or dislike him, you have to respect what he's done in these yep. playoffs. And, and to me, that's all that matters right now. So before we get to Warriors-Blazers preview, Warriors-Rockets thoughts. I mean, I, I expected the Rockets to win that game six, but I can't say I'm surprised by the result. We were talking about this before the game. You know, even without Kevin Durant, man, the Warriors are still insanely good. And I, I like seeing them sort of get back in touch with their roots. When Durant's not there, they are playing with more pace. They're shooting more threes. They're running way more high pick and roll with Steph Curry and Draymond Green, which has been proven time and again. It's just unguardable. They basically used that pick and roll to dice up the Rockets in the second half in that game six. I mean, Steph was having... Kind of similar to what happened in Game 5, an utterly miserable first half. He goes scoreless and then pours in 33 second-half points to bring them home, hits some massive shots down the stretch. You know, the Rockets definitely had their chances, and I think it would be fair to say that they, they kind of gave this one away at points. They had some bad turnovers down the stretch, but the Warriors took this one. You know, they, they came into Houston and they snatched it away. And, you know, something I tweeted after this game is like, if Kevin Durant wants to stay in Golden State, great. If he wants to leave, I personally will be happy just as an NBA fan because I think that both he and the Warriors are more interesting apart than they are together. And I, I love watching this Warriors team shorthanded try to problem solve and just going back to their bread and butter, you know, and playing with a, a little bit more variance. And that's what they did in, in games five and six without Durant. And uh, it was really impressive. Yeah, for me, so, I, you know, I've been going on for a while about the, the opportunity the Rockets squandered last year when Chris Paul got hurt. And then I was just flabbergasted by the opportunity they squandered when Kevin Durant left the court in game five. And they come back from 20 down and still can't close the deal. That's probably taking away from just the greatness of Steph Curry and the Warriors, who are just the better team. They've proven it time and time again. I'll say this about the Rockets. They're like, I, 
I think they've now squandered their best chance with this core to win a title over the last couple of years. I don't think it was their last chance. You can miss your best chance and not have it be your last chance. I think the Mavericks will tell you about that. Right. But, like, when I watch this team and how devastated they looked after that game six, what, what comes to my mind is, like, how do you drum up emotional investment in the, in the regular season again, come October, if you're the Houston Rock? You know what I mean? Like, well, you've, think- been, you've been to, like as close to the top of the mountain as you can come in the last two years. And I don't mean by being in the finals and close to the title, but I'm sure they believed get past the Warriors and that is their title. And to go through what they went through in 2018, up 3-2, losing Chris Paul, missing 27 consecutive threes, to run it back and be in the same spot the next year. 2-2 series, come back on the road at Oracle, Kevin Durant goes down, lose that game, go home, Below, I think it was like a seven-point lead about a quarter of the way through the fourth quarter. Like, I don't know. It's just, I obviously, they're going to be fine. They're going to still be a good team, and I still think they'll be a contender, especially if Kevin Durant and free agency take a toll on the Warriors. But it's just like, man, if you're a fan of that team, if you're a player on that team, like, how do you, come October, just drum up emotional investment in an 82-game regular season again? I think this season showed that you don't. I, I, you know, they started this year looking absolutely awful. They were 14th in the West after 25 games, and I think it took hitting that low point to basically kick them into gear. You know, obviously they don't get to where they get to without Harden going absolutely ballistic while Chris Paul and Clint Capella are injured. They, I think they needed to hit rock bottom in order to finally wake up, and it's possible the same thing happens next year where they have a bit of a hangover to start the season, get off to a sluggish start, and realize, oh, crap, if we don't pick it up, we might miss the playoffs. And eventually, you know, they'll figure it out and they'll get going again. This team's still going to be a force next season, I think. Quite honestly, I mean, if, if Durant isn't in Golden State, if you're looking at teams that could basically step up and be right there at the top of the Western Conference pecking order with the, the Warriors... I think the Rockets are right there, yeah. and, I, and I, I do think they're going to get another opportunity. I really hope they will because, honestly, they deserve it. At, at this point, they deserve as many cracks as they can possibly get with this core that they've put in place because, I mean, apart from just the formula that they use to construct this team, I mean, the players themselves have just put so much into trying to solve this Warriors puzzle, and they've come so close. You know, they've come as close as pretty much any team has since since Durant joined the Warriors anyway so uh, I hope they get another crack at it and and I hope finally one day they're able to scale that mountain yeah and also just credit to the Rockets as a whole players organization everything for for going for it when a lot of teams seem to punt on contention the last couple of years because of the mighty Warriors and the Rockets they didn't slay the dragon, but man, they tried. They tried so hard and harder than a lot of other teams even did. So credit to them, but let's move on to the one non-Warriors team that is still in the Western Conference picture. Blazers, Warriors, West Finals, your prediction. I got the Warriors in five. Uh, I, I am so unbelievably impressed with what the Blazers have done to this point. I just think this matchup is so tough for them. I mean, it's tough for anybody. It's the Warriors, but for the Blazers, I just, I don't know that they're going to be able to provide as much resistance as the Rockets did. And like I said, I really worry about Cantor just getting played off the floor in this series. I know 
he's not going to have an individual matchup as difficult as Jokic was or nearly that difficult. But I think it's going to be more difficult for him to guard the Warriors' pick and roll than it was to guard Denver's pick and roll. I think that's obvious. And while you know he managed to hang basically against the Thunder and the Nuggets because the shooters weren't making shots and because the Blazers were basically able to send him help and kind of dare opponents to beat them from outside, you can't really do that against Golden State. I think that gives me some concern. Uh, at the other end of the floor, I mean, you saw what Paul Millsap was able to do, the, do to them as far as just being a rover, playing 20 feet off Evan Turner or Al Farouk Aminu and, and blowing stuff up in the middle of the floor. I mean, take that and multiply it by 100, and that's going to be Draymond Green in this series. Like, I, I give them a game. I think they're going to have, like, a really fun, stirring Game 3 win at home, and then I think the Warriors put their foot down and close it out in five. Yeah, I had Warriors in six, but I could easily see five. I agree that I think Portland wins a Game 3 at home um, and maybe nothing else. The one thing I'll say, you know, you talked about Cantor being played off the floor. This might actually be the matchup where, not that I believe they're better without KD, but where I can see that ah, they don't really need Kevin Durant because obviously with KD, their strength is the Hamptons 5 lineup, right? Their death lineup. I mean, I've talked about it ad nauseum throughout the playoffs, but the whole idea of the only way you can survive against that matchup is if you take advantage of what should be a size advantage against them. Portland's even better equipped to do that than Houston was because of a guy like Cantor and what he can do on the offensive glass. Portland was a top two offensive rebounding team during the regular season. They're the best offensive rebounding team left in the playoffs. The Warriors are not a good defensive rebounding team. They were 17th in the regular season and they've successfully rebounded less than 70% of defensive rebounding opportunities in the playoffs. That's abysmal. So the problem there though is that most of that was when they were in the Hamptons 5 lineup because they're just not big enough. Without Durant, that's not really an issue because they go with their core four of Steph, Clay, Draymond, Iguodala, and then a more traditional big man like Kevon Looney. And with lineups like that, they clean the defensive glass like a pretty average team. And so that's just like one advantage that I thought the Blazers could exploit that kind of disappears when KD's actually not on the floor. And if you take away their opportunity to create multiple shot possessions and kind of get multiple cracks on it over and over, I, the Blazers just don't have enough. The talent disadvantage is way too big. The disparity there is way too great. So I, I just don't see how they win more than one, maybe two games. I do think they're going to have to sell out to try and press that advantage and win the possession Just crash back. the hell out of the offensive glass. Crash the offensive glass, try to create ex- extra possessions. It's risky, obviously, because if you whiff, the Warriors are going to murder you in transition. But you got to try and gain any edge that you can. And I think the Blazers' best shot might just be to win the possession battle decisively. And that that is, you know, offensive rebounding is one aspect of that. And the other one is turnovers. And, and this is why, again, I'm just like a little bit worried about the Blazers in this matchup. The Warriors can kick it around, right? Like for a team as great offensively as they are, they can be pretty sloppy with the ball. But the Blazers have a very conservative defense. They force turnovers at the lowest rate of any team in the regular season. They're 12th out of 16 teams in the playoffs right now. So I don't know if that's the kind of thing that they're going to be able to take advantage of. And, you know, can they change who they are? Can they suddenly just amp up their ball pressure and get more aggressive and try to force turnovers? I don't know. And 
you know, how effectively can they attack Steph Curry, right? Like, I don't think the Rockets did that effectively enough. They were going too slowly. They were allowing Curry to hedge and recover to his original man. They weren't forcing the switch. Can can Lillard punish him if if he gets that switch? Um, are the Warriors just going to blitz Lillard and McCollum? And, and if they do, I mean, both of those guys throughout the playoffs, I've been so impressed by how they've been able to split those double teams and get into the middle of the floor. So, you know, would that even be effective if the Warriors did that? Like those guys, I think learned a lot of hard lessons in last year's series against the Pelicans. They've gotten way way better at dealing with those traps, but. You know, I, I don't have a ton of faith in the Blazers uh, role players basically being able to punish the Warriors for sending two to the ball and trying to take McCollum or Lillard out of the game. Like they became so dependent on Rodney Hood and now Rodney Hood's dealing with a hyperextended knee and we don't know really what his status is going to be. Apart from that, it's like, you, you know, you're relying obviously on Seth Curry to hit shots and you're relying on Aminu and Harkless to hit shots and it just uh, it worries me a bit for Portland's sake. By the way, the Curry versus Curry angle, amazing. Just yeah. two guys and two brothers in the Western Conference Finals, pretty awesome. The only thing I really have left to add is, um, I can't remember if I touched on this last week or not, but just the return of, um, I don't know if you want to call it peak Draymond, but it's man, it's so fun to watch. He was so good in both of those both of those games games five and six i mean he's been amazing from the start of the postseason but uh especially in closing out that series like at both ends of the floor he was just unbelievable and and this is the thing you know he has always sort of been the engine that makes this team go even if you don't say that he's their heartbeat oh sorry i was gonna say they became the warriors yes steve kerr taking over as coach and steph curry exploding to superstardom but they truly became the warriors when draymond green took over for andrew bogan in the starting lineup sorry took over for david lee in the starting lineup yeah. yeah um so yeah i mean i i guess you know maybe we'll see the blazers counter by going to aminu at the five i i think he's basically got the same amount of size as draymond like you know they're not going to get killed on the glass and that alignment I don't think uh, Amin was a pretty good rebounder and he's a good offensive rebounder too so they can downsize I think and still maybe hope to scrounge out some extra possessions on the offensive glass and defensively that's probably going to be a bit more viable uh, I think Zach Collins is going to be huge in this series if Cantor can't hang but ultimately yeah I, I just think that the Warriors have too many advantages here and I, I don't know how much the Blazers are going to have left in the tank but if this is the end of the line for them as I expect it to be, I mean, we'll have time to do a post-mortem later, I'm sure. But just what a run, man. Yeah. Like, I, I, again, I didn't expect them to get through the OKC series. Even after I picked them to win the Denver series, after watching a couple of games of that series, I really expected them to lose. They've just showed unbelievable resolve. And, uh, like, this is another thing that, that I said a couple weeks back, but I feel like this run is going to go down as one of the most incredible postseason runs that we've seen from a non-championship winning team. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe they've got the biggest surprise left for us. I would uh, love to see yeah. it. I really would. But yeah, just the one thing I was going to say about Draymond is that I don't think there's any other player that, like, I'll joke around sometimes when you have a coach, like, in the huddle with coaches. A coach gives a great speech. Like, oh, that guy, you know, you want to run through a brick wall for him. I don't know if there's a player that, Watching him at his emotional peak makes me want to run through a brick wall quite like watching Draymond Green when he he's a basketball genius who yes he's you know he's prone to making the old, old like 
occasional boneheaded decision on the court in a kind of non-basketball way, but from a pure basketball perspective, a basketball genius who is a transcendent defensive player, and while he's not the best individual offensive player, is so smart in the way he orchestrates one of the greatest offenses we've ever seen, and just the space that he covers, the all-out effort he plays with, the intensity he plays with, um, the primal screams after big plays on either end, whether it's himself or his team, it's just like all of it, you watch him at his emotional peak, and it's I don't know if any player right now brings out so much emotion in me just as a neutral fan watching the Warriors as Draymond Green does. Yeah, he really is like the rising tide, I think, that lifts all boats in Golden State. And I got to admit, even after watching his his regular season to postseason transformation last year, I was skeptical that he was going to be able to do that again this year just because he was a year older, he'd been dealing with some injuries, and had really looked, I don't want to say washed, but he, he looked like he'd lost a step at both ends of the floor for most of the regular season. And uh, t- to see him looking like peak Draymond again is, you know, it's a sight to behold. Yeah. And you talk about big game performers. Like, this guy, yeah. if there's a big game, you can count on Draymond. You remember his Game 7 performance in 2016 that the Warriors ultimately lost? Honestly, one of the, one of the great tragedies of that game is that his performance is, is going to be sort of lost in the shuffle. Everything crazy that happened in that game. I mean, nobody really talks about his performance, but it was an all-timer. And he probably would have won finals MVP if they'd won that game seven, even though he got suspended for one of the games. I mean, it's always a bit of a roller coaster with him, but it's gratifying all the same. I love riding that roller coaster, though. Yeah, don't Um, we all? All right, we got to get out of here, but last question I just wanted to ask you to bring this podcast full circle. You look at, like, how much of NBA Twitter, NBA Instagram, social media has been dominated by the Kawhi shot and the four bounces and everything. I think you can make the argument. Would you agree that this was the social media era of the NBA's finest moment or like most memeable? Like there's been bigger moments. LeBron's chase down block in game seven of the finals, I think, is up there. Dame, you know, pick a series winning buzzer beaters up there. But I don't know if I've ever seen a moment in the NBA during the social media era covered as much talked about as much memed as much uh had music played over it as much whether you're talking about the Titanic music the Rocky music uh the Canadian anthem I will always love you by Whitney Houston like you cannot go anywhere on social media without seeing this shot I'm constantly amazed by just how quickly people are able to put these videos up I'm not I'm not a meme creator so I don't exactly know how people are able to put this stuff together as quickly as they do, but it constantly impresses me and it makes all of our lives a little bit richer. So here's another thing I want to say actually before we sign off, man. I don't want to hear one more time. I mean, the, the Warriors might romp to the title from here on out, you know? They could go four and four, you know, sweep the Blazers, sweep the Bucks or the Raptors. I don't think that's going to happen, but let's say they do. I don't want to hear somebody saying, like, the Warriors ruined basketball. This was a foregone conclusion from the start. What was the point? This was the point. This second round was the point. This postseason so far is the point. Moments like Damian Lillard's series winning shot and Kawhi Leonard's series winning shot and CJ McCollum's game seven. This stuff is incredible. And the feeling Blazers fans have right now. Absolutely. It's amazing theater. And, you know, for any of these teams, whether it's the Raptors or the Blazers or the Bucks, 
it, even if it doesn't end in a championship, and even if the Warriors ultimately leave us all thinking that we should have seen this coming from the start, I don't feel that way right now. You know, and I, I, I don't put the Blazers in this conversation, but I actually do feel like three of the four teams who are left standing can legitimately win the title right now. And whether or not they do, I mean, the, the incredible moments that we've gotten to experience along the way make all this worthwhile. It's not, it's not just about the destination, you know, it is about the journey and the journey has been pretty incredible. So I hope we get more of it. I hope we get more moments like this. Could not have said it better. Could not agree more. The NBA on the court, off the court, the star talent, the personalities, the NBA is outstanding theater. It's great theater. I'm biased, but I'd argue it's the greatest theater in sports. And sometimes, probably a lot of times, you can go watch a play, you can go to the theater, and you know what the play is. You know what the script is. You know you know how it's going to end. I saw Lion King on stage a couple times after already watching the movie. Knew I was going to end. But great theater is great theater, man. And no league in professional sports does theater like the NBA right now. So enjoy it. Like you said, even if the Warriors end up romping to the title in the next two rounds, enjoy what the season has given us. If you're a Raptors fan, if you're a Blazers fan, if you're a Bucks fan, enjoy every moment of the conference finals. Just enjoy it all. Yeah. Like I said before, I mean, we're all going to die, but we got to enjoy being alive <laughs> wow, while, we're, while, while we're alive. This... You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what it's about. Like, we're here right now, and the playoffs are ongoing. The drama is incredible. Let's just enjoy it. All right, hour two of Pound the Rock is uh, <laughs> Life Chats with Joe Wolf on. Getting through you through your day and your week. Anything else to add? Are we good to sign up? No, I think that's it, man. This is Pound the Rock for Joe Wolf on. I'm Joseph Sharp. <laughs>